We are live. Great. Thank you. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Connected Learning TV. Uh, now, today, thank you for joining us. This is the second webinar of our April 2016 series. The series is titled Journalism Today, News, Literacy, and Learning in the Digital Age. Uh, the series was organized by the National Writing Project with great good friends and colleagues at Fusion, at Youth Radio, at the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, and PBS NewsHour Student Reporting Labs. If you're watching now, please, we love it if you would take a moment and tweet it out to your network, share it with your networks, whatever way, so they know that we're on right now. Um, please do. And, of course, even if you're watching it not live, you can do the sharing as well. We'll talk a little bit about that. I'm Elise Ivanadon, the Executive Director of the National Writing Project. I'm going to be your host today. I'm really excited. Um, any of you who know me know that I was a high school journalism teacher, so I've been crazy excited to hear from tonight's guests, and actually this whole series has been great. Tonight we have Steve Fulton, who is a teacher from North Carolina and a TC with the Charlotte, UNC Charlotte Writing Project. Welcome, Steve. And Mark Schulte from the Pulitzer Crisis Reporting Center. And it's great to have somebody from anything with Pulitzer in its name, Mark. Thank you. Um, the prizes are out right now in April, so Pulitzer has a lot of our attention. But we're going to hear about a particular thread from you that's actually not the prizes, but another aspect of resources and things from Pulitzer. So, audience. Along the way tonight, we're going to be taking a look at some great resources from the Pulitzer Center, things that are going to help all of us as educators and learners kind of take a more nuanced understanding of issues in the news with an emphasis on what we're going to talk about as underreported news. More about that later. Now, before we dive into our conversation, a couple of things to go over, and then we'll get right to our guests. If you're watching live right now, we'd love you to use the comments and questions. Uh, give us comments and questions. You can use Twitter hashtags. We'll be watching those. Connected learning, hashtag connected learning, hashtag two next prez, number two, two next prez. You can also use the Q&A feature in the webinar itself. Um, that's part of the video player. We'll pick up your questions there and try to feed them to our guests. Feel free to do that. Now, after the program's live, if you're watching it on demand, this webinar is going to be available as a resource on letters2president.org. You should be seeing on the screen a sense of that, a picture of that website and the URL, letters2president.org. You'll find this webinar and a lot of other resources and opportunities that are connected to the election, writing about civic issues, digital literacies, just a whole bunch of stuff. And we're going to talk later about the Letters to the Next President project anyway. So keep that URL in mind the whole time. Now, webinar, it's co-produced, co-streamed at the National Writing Project's EducatorInnovator.org uh, website. It's also part of the series of programming related to Letters to the Next President 2.0. Again, we're going to talk about that later, but that's a project, just to give you a view, that connects and engages young people, 13 to 18, to research, write, and make media about the letters, of, uh, excuse me, about the issues they care about in this election season. Hence, letters to Next Press. More later, let's get to our guests. Let's let you both have a chance to introduce yourself, and Mark, let's start with you. Sure. Um, 
My name is Mark Schulte. I taught, um, well, I started out with a back background in magazine journalism in Virginia and then um, more recently at U.S. News and World Report here in Washington, D.C. And I also taught uh, high school journalism, at least, as well um, for 10 years at Washington International School here in D.C. Now I'm at the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. We are celebrating our 10th year. Um, I've been there for five of those. It's fabulous. Thank you. Steve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I haven't been all over the place like you, Mark. Um, <laughs> I, my background's in middle grades education, English, and uh, 13 years ago I started teaching eighth grade language arts in Kannapolis, uh, North Carolina, and I'm still in that position today, though every year seems like it's a little bit different just based on what I'm inquiring into and based on the conversations that I'm having with National Writing Project colleagues. Uh, colleagues from the UNC Charlotte Writing Project, the site I'm connected with, and also different groups that we are uh, connected with. And I'm excited today to continue that conversation about the new stuff that we're digging into with the NWP and the Pulitzer Center. Thank you, Steve. And we're going to get to see some of the work that's going on in your classroom a little bit later in the show. Um, it's really interesting stuff. We're going to be hearing from you. But the very first thing we're going to do, Mark, if we can, is hear from you to get a little context around the Pulitzer Center. As I said, you know, it's, it's a famous name. Anytime Pulitzer is out there, it's a very famous name. But the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting really has a pretty special mission, um, a specific thing it gives attention to. And I have to say for um, myself and some other people in the NWP, it wasn't something that we always knew about. And when we discovered, I think, you know, we discovered the work that you all are doing we got all excited about bringing that to the attention of other teachers. So would you take us into what you do at the, at the center? Sure. So the center is, um, yeah, the Pulitzer name helps a lot, that's for sure. <laughs> and we are uh, deeply connected to the family's um, tradition in journalism. But we do not give out the prizes, so I have no influence over that. We sit there biting our nails just like everyone else. Uh, we actually do occupy a very um, specific kind of special area, and it's a very interesting thing to talk about, when, especially when you're talking to, to, to students about media choices and news. So our organization, as I mentioned, is 10 years old. Um, we were formed as a news critique, in a sense. We were formed with the recognition that um, the commercial journalism industry is undergoing some kind of painful uh, rebirth moments. I mean, there are lots of ways that you could say it. If you were <laughs> sort of depending on your age and, and uh, where you are in your profession and stuff, I mean, older reporters would say that the business is in decline. And you could certainly make a strong case for that. Newspapers are closing right and left. Uh, staffs are getting cut. Budgets are cut. Um, and a lot of people have lost their jobs. It's really sad. On the other hand, um, there are lots of opportunities for new kinds of storytelling, for new ways of reaching people. And so if you're just a, a journalist just starting out, it's kind of an exciting time. I mean, it's, a, it's almost a golden age, you might say, for, for good storytellers. Um, however, in this kind of intervening period, which now is stretched to almost a whole generation, I mean, I talk to kids who are 15, 16 years old, and I say throughout your lifetime uh, we've had this problem. Um, so it's a long period of adjustment, right? And in the old days, there were uh, fat budgets, and and, the, and reporters were sent off uh, to places like Nairobi and 
uh, Beijing and whatnot willy-nilly, um, and there was a lot of reporting, a lot of good reporting um, in newspapers, TV stations, what have you. Um, what has happened as the news business has has had to kind of shrink back and, and make some hard choices is that global reporting uh, tends to be, for any given news organization, the first thing on the chopping block. Um, so, for instance, the Chicago Tribune doesn't have a single uh, reporter overseas now. They used to have bureaus all over. You just multiply that times uh, virtually every news organization in the country and you see not a, a total disappearance of foreign news. I mean, you can pick up any paper and find it, but really uh, it's fewer and fewer um, uh, reporters who are doing this this work and so they, you know, they tend to repeat familiar narratives and they tend to kind of perhaps make the same mistakes, etc. There just is a, a real need, I think, um, and I think educators agree that uh, this is a time when uh, we need more global news and more news about our role in the world than, than we ever have, and we actually have less of it. So the Pulitzer Center, which is not an organization that people generally recognize, we, we tend to operate uh, somewhat in the background. We very simply provide a facilitation for reporting to happen in the form of travel grants. So at least if you, for in instance, are very interested in learning about the ancient scrolls of Mali, uh, and you are a videographer, you know, you have a video uh, um, connection to, let's say, PBS NewsHour, they're our friend, um, and the folks at PBS NewsHour are very excited about running a story about these ancient manuscripts and how they're at risk. Um, all of the pieces are in place except nobody can pay the bills to get you over to Timbuktu. So that's what we would do. You would write up a grant proposal and we would fund that. So we do that about uh, 100, 120 times a year. Um, we have now many hundreds of projects and work with hundreds of journalists around the world. Really quickly and just pertinent to this conversation, um, the other piece, and this is kind of where I hang out, the other piece of what we do is we don't just kind of write checks and, and get this stuff published. Um, we, we use it to spark and maintain conversations, and we try to reach people beyond uh, the audience for the outlet. Um, and we think, and, and I have deeply felt for my entire career, that good global journalism is an incredibly powerful educational textbook, and so we spend a lot of time, our organization has has a kind of gut instinct to work with educators, and that's what I do. We uh, connect our, our projects to educators, social science teachers, writing teachers, etc., um, K through 12 in the college, um, college and university space as well. And one of the things that we think is particularly valuable about that is our approach. When you talk about underreported news, we're not just looking at the Ebola outbreak of the moment or the earthquake that happened yesterday and hopping around the globe, um, going from sort of uh, nightmare to nightmare um, and, and staying with them for 30 seconds and then moving on. What we like to do is identify long-running uh, what we call systemic issues that affect many, many millions of people and stay with those issues over time. So, so I think a few sentences ago you used a word that was interesting to me, um, the teacher side of me, when you said, you know, that in some ways the news is a textbook. Um, mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of teachers, and certainly we can imagine uh, social studies teachers, uh, general teachers, general education teachers that really count on 
uh, public media, the news media, um, the kind of what we learn out in the world because it's coming to us through journalism to really expand um, national understanding of issues and global consciousness. So whether a teacher is doing a kind of current events thing, that might be one track the teachers are doing, um, but just otherwise maybe just using the news to spark an opportunity to take a deeper dive into something or make it relevant to young people. And in a way that is kind of like a, a, a large kind of global conversation that in a way is like another textbook in the best sense of it, um, I think. So that piece, which you're really saying that the, the Pulitzer Center really wants to make sure that that global textbook is, is giving us a window into like incredibly important issues that may not be in our 24-7 news cycle, may not be um, the latest quote from the election, may not be a number of things where we seem to have a huge amount of coverage. We seem to be getting news 24-7 all the time, but it actually may not be as broadly topical as we might want in our classrooms to really enhance a kind of global, and even I would say maybe national, um, understanding of certain issues. So we're inundated by news, but actually there's a lot that we're not hearing or learning about, and so that's part of what you're doing. I think it'd be lovely um, if you could take us into like some of those issues you just said, you know, sure. you're trying to look at some perennial long arc issues, not just mm -hmm. without necessarily running after a quick story, but investing in some longer arc important issues uh, and developing collections. Give us a sense of what some of those might be. Yeah, I, 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 that's very well put, Elise. Um, and I, I would just, I would expand just a little bit on what you said and, and say that, you know, for kids, they're inundated um, by news, but you, you know they're inundated by media generally. They're inundated by things that compete with news or that pretend to be news um, that that are that have very loud kind of bullhorns attached to them that appear prominently in their faces. And if the kids just kind of accept the defaults, to use a, a computer term, um, they will never get to the news, whether it's good or bad. I mean, it's just that, that there is so much that's intruding on their lives. Um, and again, these these tools like iPads and phones and uh, computers and so forth are, are wonderful, but the, the case that I make is that um, nobody is telling kids how to create a healthy information diet. In fact, um, the free market encourages them to have an unhealthy information diet and to waste a lot of time and so forth. So. What I would say, and I will get to your question, the, the issues, what I would say is that uh, we need to help them understand how to cultivate a healthy news diet. And so, you know, that, that needs to start pretty early, I think. And, and, and we need to show them how powerful and how interesting journalism can be as a window on the world. And so my organization's uh, approach to that uh, can be found at pulitzercenter.org slash gateways. Um, the gateways page is a a way of looking at these kind of big buckets, there are about 19 of them right now I think, that we look at over and over again. So, and these will be familiar to people who are familiar with sort of the global issues concept, but they, they include water and sanitation, they include food security, climate change, rights for women and children, uh, fragile states, um, Ep epidemics, outbreaks and epidemics, um, etc. So there are, there are like, as I said, there are more than a dozen of these, and we ha we might have 
uh, as many as 30 or 40 projects um, within each of these that kind of relate to them as they manifest themselves around the world. Yeah, so this isn't just about picking up a, a particular thing. Uh, you might move, for, you mentioned, um, for example, epidemics, etc. Probably a lot of people now are hearing about Zika and getting coverage of that. But it's not about just chasing that story. It's being able to provide a, a bigger picture of that globally and historically over time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Ebola was one example. I was in schools in Chicago last year um, right after the Ebola outbreak and every that the word Ebola was on every child's lips um, and it won't be now but I mean that's sort of all they know about Africa at this point and Ebola is a very important story but we we you know and this is where the news fails I mean even if kids are, are paying attention to the news they don't really have a, a very comprehensive understanding of how the world works sort of historically they just have this kind of uh, changing flashes of light where there's a disaster or, or some sort of horrific problem, etc. I mean, I think using, going back to Mali again, it's a lot to ask, but the breakdown of Mali is one that uh, would come as not such a big surprise, the, the uh, division of the country into the north and south, if you uh, had been reading journalism about <laughs> what was going on in the country, and similarly with, the, with Zika and Ebola, um, understanding the conditions for these diseases um, helps you to kind of anticipate when they're going to break out and understand them and and uh, and and comprehend the ramifications and the and the um, uh, the consequences of them afterwards. So Ebola, for example, I mean, we, I don't know that we have much on Zika right now, but Ebola, we we um, funded a a feature length documentary on. We've done a, a number of uh, reports on the aftermath of Ebola in the in the countries where it broke out, et cetera. So that's, that's the kind of thing that we're looking at when we say long-term kind of sustained spotlight on these issues. So, so I'm really eager to get to Steve in one minute. Um, the, and actually, we're going to see a really nice connection with one of your issues um, that you mentioned there in, in Steve's work. But just to really be sure that everybody has a picture of it and, um, and perhaps some people are clicking on the links right now and going to take a look. When, we say about, when you say what we have there, what will somebody find when they go there in terms of resources? To our website? Yeah, just somebody. Yeah. So I'm interested in Ebola or I'm interested in any of your uh -huh. I go there and what do I find? Yeah. Uh, you will find articles. You will find photographs, videos, infographics, um, audio slideshows, podcasts, mm -hmm. the whole range of media. And... Um, <laughs> They're set there. Those are things available to teachers to use in their classroom. So they're not in the firewall. They're just nope. leaving there. No, that's that's really important to us. Um, so they may be um, they may be behind the firewall on the on the publication site, but our site, which does not compete with these publications, is there for educational purposes. We archive all the content so that it's all there. It's cross-indexed, and the lesson builder, which I'll get to later. Um, is a way for educators to find good content and to build it into curricular materials. That's great. Thank you, And Mark. it's all free. Mm -hmm. We're going to get back to the lesson builder, um, but first we're going to hear an example of um, some work from Classroom that probably would make those resources seem deeply relevant. So, Steve, if we could go to you. Um, and some people in the writing project that know you or follow you have maybe been following the story a little bit, uh, you've been doing some fabulous work 
with your students um, about current events and issues, and particularly, I think a lot of us caught wind of the work that you were doing that got sparked by the Flint water crisis, and kind of a perfect example, I know around the country, um, you know, whether it's about having kids do their own water testing, how do we test water, mm -hmm. the fact that a lot of school districts are now, and schools are looking at water testing inside the school, there's so much that's youth relevant um, that captures their attention. You really built a whole thing around it. Would you would you take us into the story of that work in your classroom? Um, yes, yes I will. Um, and it was a new adventure for me this year, which always happens every year, especially since, like Mark, just listening to your story, I'm getting all these new ideas for new directions where I want to go. Um, so it started, I, I know you're going to be talking later about letters to the next president, Elise, and so I'm not going to get too far into that, but I just, I heard you talk about it a while ago at one of the conventions. I'm like, that just sounds really cool, and I want my students to get involved with it. Um, so this was my starting place. Um, I teach eighth grade, as I said before, and eighth graders, they're really passionate about a lot of things, a lot of things that are important to them. Uh, surprisingly, even politics, especially around political seasons, um, where they are inundated with just stuff on social media and advertisements on TV. Um, and so, Letters to the Next President, I thought this would be perfect. It's an outlet for student voice. It included multimodal expression. It extended well beyond the classroom walls. All the things that um, I w want in, in learning experiences for, the connected learning experiences for my students. Um, but in starting these conversations with students about politics, um, I learned that while they were definitely interested in having a voice and they had opinions, um, they weren't always, you know, informed or critical. They, you know, were shaped by statements they um, might have heard by their diet of news information, um, things they heard from their parents. There she is. Go back to bed, <laughs> The um, young lady's uh, coming on camera was foretold a little earlier, so we're <laughs> delighted to see her. <laughs> yes, this is Rosalie. Um, you know, things I hear from their friends, uh, advertisements, viral videos, and posts that, you know, show up on social media. Um, they came to me with some really wild things that they've heard about different, you know, political candidates. And um, so that's how we started our conversation was around those stories. Um, and I wanted my students to be informed. I want them to be more critical. I want them to be uh, civically engaged. And so what I decided to do was focus the content of my language arts, of my language arts class around current events for, you know, a quarter or so and just to see how it went um, as a way into leading up to some of the activities around letters to the next president. Um, and like I said, I hadn't done this before. It worked out incredibly well. Uh, I teach a little bit of background. I teach on an interdisciplinary team. Um, so, and while my science and social studies teachers that I work with, they, they touch on current events. Uh, they really move quickly through curriculum and don't really have time to really dig in. So, I decided I was going to make my classroom, which focuses more on uh, literacy and skills than prescribed content, as like the place to really do this digging and um, and then ultimately producing. So I plan with my science and social studies teachers to focus on subjects that connected with their content. Um, for example, when my social studies teacher was teaching about the Bill of Rights in my class, we're looking about uh, you know the Apple versus the U.S. government. Uh, with my science teachers teaching about carbon emissions and fossil fuels, we're looking at the Paris Climate Summit and climate change. Um, and we, per issue, we spend about a week or so to learn about the subject, to read and think about just like different types of texts that depict that, that um, um, depict different perspectives on that particular issue. To ask some critical questions, 
to write and speak back, and then you know at the end to discuss and reflect and decide on the next steps. Um, so we continue through this. So, Steve, I just want just to pause because I know we're going to look um, in depth at some work, but uh, I just thought that was a really interesting and lovely point that on your interdisciplinary team, everybody's content. There's some connection somewhere you can mm -hmm. find between your content and something which is relevant in the kind of current events piece. So yes. it sounds like for your your colleagues in the other disciplines. That wasn't a challenge. You were able to find something going on right now that that sort of says this stuff is relevant. It's happening in the news today. Yes, definitely. Um, they liked it. The students, of course, as they as they saw these connections, they were more engaged in learning. You know, in the in the content area classes as well as just my classes and conversations that would start in my class would extend over into the other classes. And um, the other teachers, of course, appreciated it, and so did my. Principal for you know because often on interdisciplinary teams of middle grades we're just always so busy that that interdisciplinary teaching doesn't always have the the chance to happen. Yeah. Um, so okay, so anyway, we did, we did this for you know um, the course of a quarter or so before we it sort of culminated in um, looking at some major election issues. And then we did some editorial writing and submitted these editorials to the New York Times editorial contest that they had at the end of the end of end of March. Um, and now we're looking at making what's my issue videos, which I'll talk about later when we talk about resources, and uh, making political art, which is something else that we're playing with right now. Um, so you mentioned Flint, and I want to be sure that I mentioned I, I talked a little bit about what happened with that uh, with the Flint water crisis. I, I approached this issue similar to how we launched into the other topics. It came up in social studies because they talked a bit about current events um, and they were talking about chemistry in the science class and so we said, you know, this will be an interesting issue to look at. Let's start here. And, um, and shortly after we got into it, it, it quickly became a bit more personal to students and, and I think for a number of reasons. One is that it was the story of, of, of within it was the story of government uh, mistreating people who were underrepresented uh, it was a population much like our population um, in a circumstance that really wasn't a whole lot different either. So Flint had the auto industry in our town, Kannapolis. We had the mill and things were pretty bleak when, when that closed down. So my students connected with that. Um, and another way in which they connected was um, a, my principal gave me a contact of someone who she knew who taught at a school in Flint that I reached out to. And so we, I ended up getting in touch with a sixth grade teacher from Flint. So her students were able to have a Google Hangout with my students, and my students were able to, you know, ask some questions that they've created for them, um, as, as well as, you know, hear their stories um, being told by these students, who more importantly were able to like tell their stories to an interested audience of my students. And and it was a great conversation. Uh, the students talked about concerns ranging from you know race and poverty and students' feelings about the government, their knowledge about what's happened, how their lives have changed on a daily basis, um, to appointment in the Panthers loss in the Super Bowl, um, and they even wrapped things up with a, a, a dance contest, um, which blew my students' mind that these students in you know hundreds of miles away were new to some some of the same dance moves. Um, so of course you can I just have to say, I think that, that anybody who either te absolutely teaches or just knows young people, um, that, that's like such a deep look at how they can be so in 
both passionate and engaged in the issue, and then there's a dance contest. I mean, that's that's a fabulous thing, and I love that you shared that because um, we're, we're, you know, that's an example of some hard issues that young people could be listening about, and you know, real and serious. And I think a, I hear from a lot of educators, you know, they want to make sure that their classrooms are still um, joyous places that can follow youth interests. So we're not talking about all of this um, and the current events work and that kind of thing as necessarily simply being a heavy load. Um, there's also the sense of connecting with other people, feeling powerfully informed and that kind of thing. So I, I just wanted to jump in and highlight that because I kind of love that detail that you shared. But go back. Go ahead. Please keep going. I love, I love that part too, and it, uh, it, it made it the whole issue made it much more um, personal. It created a greater sense of connectedness within the two groups of students. Um, my students felt a sense of mutual responsibility and and, and indignation um, to like want to like go and do something and 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 raise awareness for these students who were um, affected by you know this failure of the government in their in their in their town. Um, and so, of course, we didn't. We couldn't move on to the next issue. That next week, um, we had to. We, we spent some more time with it because that's where students' interest was. Um, and so, we used class time to produce some texts to continue our inquiry. To produce some texts, also at, um, aiming aiming towards raising awareness within the school, uh, within the community. Um, also, and they also designed a, a and carried out a fundraiser, a pretty successful fundraiser where. Um, the students put together a student-staff basketball game that raised a couple thousand dollars to for the school in Flint to help their fundraising efforts to replace their uh, water filtration system. Um, and students felt really good about it. And eventually, yes, we did move on. Um, but students have continued to follow the story and stay actively involved in what's happening in not just Flint, Michigan, but um, other places around the town, around the country, where. They're now much more critical of governments who are, you know, cutting taxes, but also cutting, um, not just cutting taxes, but also cutting public services for students or for people, um, and also where there are infrastructure and, and water-related issues. Oh, you're muted. Yeah, that was me. I'm needing to unmute. Okay. Thank you. Um, that was a lovely rundown sort of of some of the substance that you were looking at. I'd love to get a rundown as well. You walked through and kind of mentioned um, a bunch of tools, a bunch of kind of digital literacy opportunities, a lot of forms that young people might have been writing or reading um, just to help everybody kind of see the sort of academic work and the skills that are being developed and the stuff that's getting done. Um, while those young people are following their interests and you're following current events. There was just a real list there. I'd love you to kind of um, be able to list some of those things so that, that people can really see that there's real teaching and learning of basic skills and digital literacy tools and um, I'm sure a lot of tech tools as well. Could you walk some through some of those? Um, on the way to then also hearing back to Steve about some of the tools and resources available back at the center. But give us a sense of some of that that they produced or did or read or learned to use. Okay, so um, I guess in start, my starting place was a combination of a couple of different resources. Um, one thing I've just always really liked was Kelly Gallagher's idea of Article of the Week. 
um, where you students take a current events article and they read it at the beginning of the week, and at the end of the, the, end of the week they turn in a written response to it. Um, it was a great way of keeping students continually the loop of conversations and things that are happening in the news, but in itself I didn't feel like it was substantial enough to, to get toward the teaching that and learning that, that, that I wanted to happen. Um, as far as the depth, where the depth comes, I really like what KQED did. Um, they provide you know resources a couple times a week to learn about issues that are important in the world and the news, and they provide a space for conversation around those issues through social media. And so the way that I structured it was I sort of combined these two ideas um, where we're starting each week with an article that we read and we think through an issue around this news article um, in sort of article of the week fashion. And then, and then I would ask students to write in response to this article and turn in this response at the end of the week. But as we wrote during the week, um, we pulled upon all of these other resources that we looked at and we questioned. Um, and a lot of the resources came from KQED's Do Now. So I mentioned before I planned with my interdisciplinary team. Um, and so, of course, I, I pulled articles that, that dealt with those subjects that were interdisciplinary. But I also made sure that they aligned with what they were doing on KQED with their um, Do Now. So during we'd start with an article, we would read, and then during the week we would watch and we would view and we would listen to and tweet about the topic, drawing these resources like videos and podcasts from PBS and NPR that are curated through KQED through their Do Now. Um, Twitter was a really big part of it. Um, with Do Now, of course, there's a, a part of it where uh, there's a question that prompts students to um, discuss a topic related to a, usually a video or a, a, or a podcast as a starting place. Um, and so we would use Twitter to respond to those questions and to respond to high school students around the country who are also talking about those same issues with the common hashtag that KQED posted. But Twitter was also a really cool resource because it provided, um, it was valuable just beyond what students did with do now. So Twitter, yes, we did use it in some cases as a spa spaces to like speak out from class activities. Um, but we also used Twitter to speak into real conversations, not just the conversations hosted by um, do now, but conversations that were happening in social spaces. So in the example of the Flint water crisis, students were forming, having informed things to say about the water crisis, and they were tagging Governor Snyder, or they were using, you know, hashtag Flint water crisis, and people who they didn't know but were also thinking about and talking about this issue would chime, you know, chime in with them because they were able to put their words in these conversations um, using social media. And the other really neat thing about social media was it gave students a chance to feel the other sorts of things that people were saying around these issues. So there's the there's things that are reported in the news that they're going to see, maybe tweeted um, or we looked at in class, but they're also going to see um, different perspectives that get raised that don't always make headlines. Um, and this was a good thing to, to do too. So students were able to say, okay, well in the news reporting this, but over on Twitter they're talking about this. Um, how come there is this this disconnect and why isn't the news report what's reporting some things and and not others? Um, okay, yes, so I think that answers that question. Yeah, and I think those of us that um, followed your discussions or saw that your, about your connections with students in Flint, 
Uh, you mentioned Google Hangouts and that sort of thing. So also those kinds of tools that let you make direct people-to-people -people contact. That's kind of what we're doing right now, actually, having a Google Hangout. Um, I think that when we come back in just a few minutes, I'd love to get back to this, um, Mark, what you said before about a healthy news side, because an interesting, a, an interesting thing in what you were just saying, Steve, about using Twitter in a particular way from a place of being informed and participating in conversations, having some look at the issues, some information about the issues, and not simply from a place of vast just the stream that, that washes over you, for example. We know that uh, most Americans right now are getting their news links actually probably mostly from Facebook, the numbers would show. But social media is a really powerful way that people interact with news, and so we can't just turn it off and expect kids to develop the skills that they need to be able to participate in different ways. It sounds like you're doing a lot of work with that. I'd love to come back to that. Um, in a few minutes. I want to make sure that we hear a bit about also the, the resources that like Lesson Builder, etc. Mark, that you mentioned before because you can see I think now here in your classroom, Steve, how the kinds of things that you have at, um, uh, at the Pulitzer Crisis Center could fit nicely into that. So with that sense of a classroom, love to go back to you, Mark, and just then kind of finish this resource look by giving us a sense of what the lesson builders like and how that works. Because I think Steve would be like using it right now, actually, once he gets this tour. Thanks, Elise. Yeah, and, and Steve, you know, to your point, and, and also to your point, Elise, um, you know, what an opportunity to use social media. I mean, it's what the kids like to use, and um, they can participate meaningfully in national and international conversations and you know the the thing about the um, about the power of journalism as a textbook is I mean two words I would use relevance and authenticity and I think you know Steve when you're talking about um, engaging your kids meaningfully with policymakers and so forth around the Flint water crisis that that feels real to them because it is real. It's not a, a, a conversation just between them and you and they get a grade and so forth. They're part of something that's happening now. It's relevant and it's, it's an authentic participation and that's what I think you know, part of the power of journalism is. Okay, if you're the Pulitzer Center and this is what you create, you, you, you help to create lots and lots of journalism um, and you think you have this kind of gut feeling that it's going to be useful to educators, um, your challenge is how do you organize it, how do you create an interface between all of that reporting which is on the site, as I mentioned, in the form of you know, blog posts up to 10,000 word articles for Virginia Quarterly Review, uh, multimedia pieces, everything that you can imagine. There will soon be VR, I can assure you. Um, how do you um, filter out all of the other things that we're doing and the things that aren't particularly useful and serve up all of that great content to educators in a way that's going to be useful? So that was the challenge that we were sort of looking at about a year ago. Um, and so what we did was we sat down with our developers and we said, first of all, we want to create a search function that is specifically designed for educators. So 
It was going to, as I say, it was going to highlight certain things that we thought would be useful. It was going to cut out things that we thought would be less useful, etc. So at the heart of the lesson builder, um, and there are links um, in the documents that we'll share here, um, is, a, is a refined search feature, okay? And again, all of this material, the lesson builder itself and all of the material on the site, it's all free. You just, uh, and in fact, you can create uh, lessons anonymously. You don't even have to create an account if you don't want to. Uh, you won't be able to return to them. Uh, they're sort of one-offs if you're in a big hurry, but um, you can create an account and actually have archives of lessons and so forth and do lots of interesting things with them. So the lesson builder is at first is a way to surface great content and then there are just some very simple mechanisms. Um, I used the, the TED education site as kind of a model because I thought it was so brilliantly um, flexible and so it's basically just the idea of find resources and you can search by um, you know you can search by topics and by media format and so forth by region etc you find the resources that you want you add them to your lesson um, and then you add um, you know educator notes those can be as long as you want and those are sort of internal here's what this is this lesson is about here's what it does um, and then you and then you write a student facing section and you can add questions um, so very simple and can be extended all over the place and um, used for one-offs or, or units or year-long things um, and everything in between so that's that's essentially the idea was to create a, a very intuitive tool uh, to allow teachers at across grade levels I mean we have uh, we have uh, university professors uh, in our public health um, consortium writing lessons on the lesson builder and we have kindergarten teachers and, and everything in between so it's it's uh, it can scale up or back just as the reporting can. And so, for a teacher who goes there, that also serves as a way for them to curate and hold on to content, but then also to right. see what other great people have put together. Yeah, we, I mean that's I think that is one of the big potentials of this is to create a community. So right now um, we have probably forty or fifty educators who have created lessons. Um, and you can go and, and click on their names and find lessons that they've created. Uh, if you like their work, you can uh, you can also share and adapt them. Uh, you can tweak them, etc. So it's meant to be a really, in the spirit of sort of open source, it's meant to be kind of an open source curriculum building tool and a community of educators. So uh, that's something that we think has a lot of promise and we'd like to see it grow. That's great. I think, Steve, you had a chance to, to dive in there yourself. How did that play out um, for your work in your classroom? And I think you're on mute. There we go. Okay, I don't think I. Yes, yeah, so I'm unmuted right now. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I. I uh, so I met with Mark at, at our at our uh, spring meeting, and um, he showed me a bit about the, what the Pulitzer Center was doing, and a little bit about Lesson Builder. And this was sort of as what as my students were. Um, beginning to move on to something else, but as he was showing me this, I was I was thinking about ways in which this would be useful. And, and the biggest thing I kept thinking about is um, I, I liked how the poll, I liked the reporting that the Pulitzer Center did, and I like how it was on global issues. Hey, hang on a second. And so, of course. <laughs> okay, I'm back. Um, my daughter was playing the piano. All right. 
and, and, and we were looking at a lot of domestic issues. Just because an, an issue is an important domestic issue in the U.S., it doesn't mean that it's an issue that or a crisis that is just limited to the U.S. Uh, nationally, globally, of course, we're all interconnected. Um, something that my, I think I mentioned before that my students touched on, particularly in the conversations on Twitter, was that what was happening in Flint was not just isolated to Flint. Issues involving infrastructure in the country, um, infrastructures related to drinking water, contamination in other cities. Um, this could have been definitely a jumping off place to a whole host of subjects that are globally connected and relevant, um, to which the Pulitzer Center is a really great resource. Uh, Mark discussed earlier that um, the, the organization reports on crises that um, fall into broad categories, so long-running uh, systemic issues, I, I think he said, um, and they're categories that often recur throughout stories that are featured in the news. So, I mean, using Pulitzer's resources, we could easily have moved from um, looking at an issue such as, you know, drinking water that's affecting us domestically here um, to examining it on a global scale and, and looking at what's happening in other countries and parts of the world and, and, and how um, they're addressing it. Um, I really like the way that the Lesson Builder site is set up um, for teachers to collect resources and design activities to use with students. Uh, the ones that are already made are really, really awesome. Um, and it doesn't have the same, I don't know how to say it, um, sort of inauthentic feel that lots of like four school resources and web tools have. Um, and I like that. For me, uh, it's because of the quality of the reporting and how it's organized and how it covers issues that are important but well outside the mainstream media headlines. Uh, I just feel like it's a really rich resources, an authentic resource for my students to and I to use and to learn from. As, as we like to say, keeping it real. <laughs> yes, keeping it real. I, I'm wondering, and, and you could respond to this, Steve, but I'm sort of interested also from Mark. Uh, there's not, no reason why, uh, given the you know a level of skill and capacity, why students couldn't go and search for their own materials there, too. We've emphasized... Um, the way that it serves educators, but the but certainly an able young person who's researching a topic themselves. This is some this is a, a set of materials that they could learn about and interact. Do you find that, Mark? Do you find um, young people coming there just to do their own research? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, these lessons, as Steve was saying, they really are. Many of them are um, are are really kind of uh, uh, useful introductions to some of these complicated concepts. Oop, there you get a cattail. Um, Just for the audience to know that we were hoping to be able to both get um, a young person yeah. cat, and so now we've achieved that. <laughs> mm -hmm. She's feeling a little underreported on herself right now. <laughs> uh, that was horrible. I'm sorry. No, uh, no. Yeah, so... so um, you know, we, we, we are inviting lots of different contributors at different levels, and so the education team tends to do things that are more sort of common core aligned, and we're sort of more teacher forward, I guess, to coin a term. But there are lots of folks, smart folks in our organization and elsewhere, who just said, well, I'd like to kind of combine a few resources and tell a story about them that you might use in a classroom, and I think students are, are responding to that. So, um, you know, bright uh, high school kids will definitely look at these. And again, they can just surface their own material themselves. They can just use the search function, which works better than the one um, on our main site now because we've we spent so much time thinking about it. That's great. Thank mm -hmm. you.
So uh, because of where we are in, in the hour here, um, I want to take a minute to go back to uh, letters to the next president. We mentioned it before, and Steve, you said that was part of getting you thinking uh, about wanting to do some more. Pulitzer Center is a partner in Letters to the Next President, and take a minute just to make sure the viewers, if you haven't had a chance to hear about this, to learn what it is. So in its biggest picture, Letters to the Next President will be open in the fall as a free and open youth publishing site. So quite literally, every young person who wants to write, and I'm going to put it in quotes, air quotes here that we can see, a letter to the next president to get a page on the internet to do that. And this big open site is really emphasizing um, a place for young people to publish their writing or a piece of video or audio or image. It will take all of those. For them to talk about an issue or issues that they would want the next president, whomever he or she may be, to pay attention to. And, and be an advocate, write a piece of argument or create a piece of argumentation, be an, an advocate for a, an issue or a set of issues that matter to them. And the emphasis is on young people ages 13 through 18, middle and high school, um, except for some of those 18 year olds, the notion is they're not, these are young people who aren't able to vote. Um, but let's not make the election season be just about the casting of a vote. Um, it can be about thinking of our common future and envisioning it. As Steve was saying, young people are kind of passionately you know, interested often in politics, much engaged through social media and other kinds of things with issues. So this Letters to the Next President is an opportunity for educators, teachers, librarians, mentors, who might have a group of young people you work with after school to have a place where you could do some work with them and they could publish their work for other young people around the country. You'll see on your screen that there's kind of a peek at what um, you'll see if you go to the letters2president.org website um, and you see the URL up there. Uh, you'll see that there's a video you can watch that will talk a little bit about the first letters to the next president which NWP did with Google in 2008, um, and some things that you can get involved in right now to get ready to help young people, if you're an adult, to get ready to help young people publish their letter or video or audio. Up until the time when the site opens for young people to start publishing, which will be after the conventions this summer, sometime after that the site will open, up until then, at this URL, you're going to see a tremendous wealth of resources, a pointer to the Pulitzer Crisis Center and other places that are gathering materials, lessons, ideas, resources, uh, links to things like this webinar. Over the summer, there's going to be lots of opportunities for educators to learn to make or do something that you might want to have your young people do in the fall, like if you think it would be interesting for them to make some political art or do a video on an issue they care about, there'll be an opportunity to learn how to do that in the summer so that you're ready to do that with young people in the fall. Um, and in fact, it sounds, Steve, from some of what you've been doing with, um, with uh, young people in your classroom that you've been actually doing some of that multimedia work. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about some of those kinds of things that you, that you did. Because the website, Letters to President, when it's up and publishing, young people can publish multimedia pieces as well as 
kind of classic pieces of writing that we might think of. You, I think, mentioned, Steve, things like um, make some political art or some things like that. Yeah, so in my language arts class, the, the place, I guess, where we left off with this, I guess I call it unit that focused on current events, was with editorial writing. Um, so we talked about writing arguments and editorials. And so we had to stop there because we, yeah, my department needed to move on to something else. Um, but I have this part, I have a section during my day where it's called our enrichment class, and I can do whatever I want with students. And so I said, let's just use this opportunity to play with some of the resources that are posted out there through Letters to the Next President and KQED um, to make different iterations of students' editorials. And so students went back to their editorials and looked at the, the messages that they want to be heard and thought about how can we put these in different, in different mediums. And so the first one that we did was um, a What's My Issue video. We used a bunch of the issues that were posted, a bunch of the videos that were already posted on the KQED's website. Um, as some mentor text to begin to think about like what sorts of things people do in these videos and what makes them effective. And then we spent some time making them. We're in the process of wrapping that up right now and hopefully once um, you know release forms get turned in and we double check that everything that they have on there is um, you know legally and fairly used, uh, we're going to send some of those uh, videos in. And then the next, probably next week, we're going to look at some of the resources that they had around making political art, and students will, um, either with their issues that they were looking at, at that they've made um, you know, a second iteration, that, that they've made these videos of, they may make them into um, art, or they may look at, find other issues that they're interested in um, and create some art around that. And that's, I'm not even planned there yet, but that's just where I plan on going. Um, over the next couple of weeks, and if I had more time, I would move on to um, the next thing that they're doing, which is arguing with images and making infographics, and also doing some spoken word poetry. Fabulous! I love it. So, part of what we wanted to do with uh, letters to the next president, um, National Writing Project, and KQED as hosts and great partners like the Pulitzer Crisis Reporting Center. Um, as one of several partners pulling together resources, is to actually have something that's really open-ended so that teachers can adapt it to the things that you'd like to do um, with the young people that you're working with next year, but actually to make sure that we don't lose the tremendous opportunity and excitement and momentum and sense of connectedness that a big national election can provide. Um, I know this, this particular election has been probably one that's going to go into the history books for a range of reasons as people are, are thinking about social studies textbooks of the future and we're living through it right now and there's a chance to be part of it in a really powerful and authentic way by um, helping young people talk about what's important to them and to do it in a spirit of doing research and inquiry and hearing multiple points of view and crafting a public voice. Uh, so all our partners are helping to make resources available to adults to be able to do that work um, with the folks that they work with uh, in their schools or in their clubs or in their libraries next fall. All you have to do, viewers, if you're at all interested in this, if you go to letters2president.org, you'll see a sign-up place. Put your email in there and you'll get um, roughly once a month a kind of overview of webinars and other kinds of resources and learning opportunities for you as an adult right now. 
and you'll get a notification when the sign-up process and website is available for you to sign up next fall's young people to be able to publish. So we're almost out of time here. I wonder for both of you, I would love to say, Mark and um, Steve, if you had one last thought, something that, uh, that you wish you'd had an opportunity to say, and I didn't give you one, <laughs> this would be the time. Um, a last thought from each one of you. Um, I can go real quick. I just want to say that we're thrilled to be part of the, the, the um, letters to the next president, and we're thrilled to be working with the National Writing Project, and um, sort of as, um, as Steve and, and Elise, as you both were kind of implying, uh, what, what, our, what I have seen uh, be really powerful in terms of student engagement with journalism is when you can connect to their passions. You can ignite their passions, or if they're already ignited, you can connect to them. I mean, students are hugely moved by social justice issues, environmental justice issues, and that is exactly the kind of journalism that the Pulitzer Center supports. And so what I would say is um, maybe you, you, you would encourage a student to sort of uh, write, a, write an impassioned letter about the Flint water crisis or about something in their community, and what you can do is have them fold it into a global context with just a little bit of uh, news consumption around that issue as it manifests in other parts of the world. So then you have a really powerful letter that, that truly addresses a global problem but starts with maybe a local one. That's beautiful. Thank you. Mm -hmm. A last thought from you. Um, yeah, I, I think I've said everything that I really wanted to say. Um, because of the tinkering that I've done this spring and my class, I've, I feel like I have a really awesome jumping off place for my own inquiry and teaching next fall. Uh, letters to the next president, KQED, the Pulitzer Center, they're all really awesome resources. Um, and I'm excited for next fall's election season for my students to learn to question, um, to raise and establish their voice. And I'm excited for even what comes after that, being able to just build on students' critical awareness and skills that they gained and connections formed uh, throughout the rest of the school year. I love being in connection with the Writing Project and all of the different organizations that we pair up with. That's fabulous. Thank you. Well, it's time for us to wrap up. I, I want to say thanks to the both of you for that wonderful conversation. It was really thoughtful. And these, the resources and the examples are great. Um, this wraps up webinar number two of the April 2016 series on journalism today. But if you're listening, please keep the energy going. Use those hashtags, hashtag connected learning and hashtag two next prez, number two next prez with a Z. Um, and there's going to be a full recording of this webinar available pretty immediately on Connected Learning TV, connectedlearning.tv, with other curated content along the way. If you found this helpful, please share this with your, web, um, with your networks. Encourage them to visit other webinars. We love that. Um, Connected Learning TV is now produced by the National Writing Project's Educator Innovator. And if people go to educatorinnovator.org, one word, .org, and sign up for the email newsletter, comes out once a month, and it'll tell you about webinars like this. So thank you, audience, for joining us, and thank you, both our guests. It was really a great look at your work. Thanks so much. Good thank night. you, Elise. Thanks, Steve.